Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Of all the complicated things age has done to my mind and body, one of the few that I'm thankful for is the perspective I've gained by having experienced life's many ups, downs, and detours. The older and hopefully wiser I've become, the greater I've been able to respect that each of us are largely formed as a result of our own unique histories and personal challenges. With that in mind, when I encounter someone either online or just out in the wild, I try to avoid casting judgment on behaviors, decisions, or life choices they may have made that I don't necessarily agree with. But as hard as I try, I know I could never truly understand the factors in their lives that have led them to this moment of my interaction with them. The story we'll hear tonight will hopefully reinforce this idea. If you were to walk down the seedier parts of Hollis Street in Halifax during the mid-80s, you may have encountered a lost-looking young girl with faraway eyes selling sex both to please her pimp and to make ends meet. At first thought, you may be puzzled as to why a teenager would choose this lifestyle and blame that faraway look in her eyes on drug abuse. But when you hear her story, you may have an easier time empathizing with her. Annette didn't choose this life, and that lost look in her eyes, substance abuse may have played a role in it, But really, Annette had just given up on life after two of her closest friends and fellow sex workers were murdered in the months prior. In tonight's episode, we'll be joined by Frank Magazine crime writer Bev Ketty, who will tell us the story of the three tragic musketeers of Hollis Street. Listeners of Nighttime will recognize Bev as a regular guest of the show, so I'll save a big introduction. Bev writes a column for the Halifax-based tabloid Frank Magazine, in which he shares the story of and advocates on behalf of Nova Scotia's many missing and murdered. Since his articles in Frank Magazine are seen mainly by readers in Nova Scotia, Bev, his editor and I, agreed that a reoccurring series of episodes on nighttime featuring his work would be a great way to give these important stories an extended life. On tonight's episode, Bev will share what I think may be his best work yet. The story that Bev uncovered may have started with his investigation into the unsolved murder of a teenage sex worker, but as he learned, And as you'll soon hear, this is the story of three young sex workers who became known as the Three Musketeers while working some of Halifax's darkest corners. However, in hindsight, the more fitting name is the Three Tragic Musketeers, as within the course of a few weeks back in the mid-80s, two of their lives were cut short by murder. Via the following conversation between Bev, Ketty, and I, we'll share the story of the Three Tragic Musketeers. Much of the information we discuss was provided by the only one of the three to survive a life of human trafficking and sex work. They thought of themselves as the three musketeers, three teenage girls working the Hollis Street stroll in the mid-1980s. Two of them were murdered more than 30 years ago. 
I've got the other one on the phone with me right now. I think about Tina every day, the woman tells me. So, Bev, this story's set in a, a different Halifax than the one we know today. So, nowadays, prostitution largely found a marketplace online. But the men and women involved had little choice but to walk the streets back in the, in the 80s. So, just set the scene for the area where a lot of this story is set, which is Hollis and Barrington Street in the 80s. Well, I'm a poor little country boy, and I moved to the city in 1988 to seek fame and fortune, and I'm still seeking them. But uh, I remember seeing prostitutes in the downtown, what they call the stroll, when I first moved here. And they typically hung around the Hollis Street area, and that's traditionally where they were for probably 100 years. There were many of the... uh, Houses of ill repute were. There was the famous one at 51 Hollis Street. I found out from my source that the further south you moved up on Hollis Street, that was when you had a higher class of prostitute. And you would start off in the northern part of Hollis and then sort of through some method work your way up south. And um, so that's that's the way Hollis Street was back then. And... Um, not anymore. Like you said, it's mostly gone online. I think back in in this time, there was there was a strip club as well. I think called the Lighthouse that was on the south end of Hollis Street. Well, actually, it's funny you should mention Lighthouse Tavern. That was a tavern that went back to the 1940s, and at some point, it became a strip club. There's a superstore there now uh, at that intersection. But back in the day, it was just dilapidated storage and warehouses and so on and i actually had an apartment on green street it was about two buildings up from the lighthouse tavern i never went there of course of course not my goodness who knows who's listening to this of course my goodness gracious (laughs) so our story we're calling it the the three tragic musketeers tell me about who they were there were three girls they were teenage girls who worked the hollis street stroll back in the mid-1980s and within six weeks of each other, two of them were murdered. And uh, one of them is the focus of our story. Her name was Tina Marie Barron. The other one was Brenda Lee Garside. And she was murdered about uh, six weeks later. And Tina's murder remains unsolved, but uh, we know who killed Brenda Lee Garside. And a lot of the information you have on the story came from a source, which is the third musketeer, the surviving one. We're calling her Annette for the purpose of the story. How did you get in touch with Annette, and was she open to sharing this with you? That took me several weeks of finessing. I have a source who works. Uh, she's a former sex worker, and I happened to write her and ask her whether she knew Tina Marie Barron. She goes, yes, I knew her, but I'm good friends with someone who is a really good friend with Tina. And she's uh, she may be interested in talking to you. So let me write her and ask her if she's willing to talk to you. So I wrote this source back a few days later, and she goes, yes, she may be willing to talk to you. Just send her an email. So Annette and I went back and forth via email for a week or so, and we arranged to talk. And uh, we talked over the course of a couple of evenings, and she spilled her soul to me and gave me tons of information about Tina, Mm -hmm. including the fact that she still thinks about Tina more than 30 years after her death. So the the three musketeers, we got... Tina Barron, Brenda Lee Garside, 
and your source who were who were calling a net. Mm-hmm. Now, what type of people were these? Like, how old were they? What are some things these three girls had in common? They were about the same age, so 16, 17, 18 years of age. And they all came from broken and, I'll say, unusual homes. Tina Marie Barron and Brenda Lee Garside both ended up for the school for girls in Truro, Nova Scotia, about an hour outside of Halifax. And that's how they met. So they became... Before there were the three musketeers of the two foster sisters, Tina Marie Barron and Brenda Lee Garside. And they eventually met uh, Annette um, because they were all working uh, the Hollis Street Stroll. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as, as 16, 17-year-old prostitutes. Yes. So Tina and, and Brenda, again, the foster two, we've called them both. Foster, foster sisters, yeah. Foster sisters. So they were foster children who ended up working the streets as prostitutes? Well, I think they felt that they were so kindred in their spirits that uh, they thought thought themselves as foster sisters. And then they met your source, Annette, while working the strip um, Mm -hmm. on Hollis Street. Mm -hmm. In your article that you wrote in Frank, you described how Annette got into prostitution. And I thought that really tells kind of the type of situation that these girls were in with their pimps. Can can you just tell me how how Annette described to you her entrance into prostitution? Well... I, I have to uh, back up a little bit and say that there's a distinction between being a prostitute and a sex worker and being trafficked. So I guess the technical term today is sex worker, and I made the mistake of referring to Annette as a sex worker, and she quickly corrected me. She was trafficked. She was hitchhiking from her home, which was outside of Halifax, and uh, she was hitchhiking. She happened to be picked up by a guy who uh, beat her and probably sexually assaulted her and uh, put her on the streets. It was not a decision for her to go into sex work. She was coerced into it. She was trafficked into it. So she was a human trafficked, I guess, into the into the work. And whereas uh, Tina Marie Barron and Brenda Lee Garside were, uh, I guess, seduced into it by pimps. Take it from me, listeners. Hiring used to be hard. There were multiple job sites, near-endless stacks of resumes, and a confusing review process. Fortunately, the dark ages of hiring are behind us. Today, in an age of magic and wonder, hiring can be easy. No longer will you need to accompany a mystic on a quest to interpret some ancient scribblings deep within Earth's darkest caverns. In fact, you only need to go to one place to get this done. ZipRecruiter.com slash night. Here's how it works. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards. Then, using their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans through thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and it invites them to apply for your job. But they don't stop there. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter's techniques are so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. 
And right now, nighttime listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash night. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash N-I-G-H-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash night. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, we call them the, the three tragic musketeers, mm-hmm. yeah. not only because of the circumstances of their life, but due to the fact that two of them died in tragic ways, the first of which is Tina Marie Barron. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get to, to what ultimately led to her passing, I'd just like to talk to you about a, a part in your article. You described how Annette was one of the last to see her alive. I believe the way you described it, the pimps didn't like them communicating, so they kind of snuck behind yeah. their, their backs and... <laughs> And I think that's what led them to a Tim Hortons. In, in Truro. But they, before that, even, they would hook off work for the night and go have a beer at Scotia Square, which was a short distance away from Hollis Street. And they would hang out at a bar in Scotia Square called Dick Turpin's. And um, and then her pimp would come and say, where's Brenda, where's Brenda? And they would say, well, I don't know where she is. But meanwhile, she was under the table uh, hiding from her pimp. And it was just a way for them to sort of get back at their pimp, even though they all knew that at the end of the evening they would all be beaten for what they were, because they weren't being productive, weren't making any money for them. Now, the the last time Annette and Tina were together was on one of these sneaking away from their pimp yeah. adventures. Yeah. Can you just tell me about that? They, they went to Truro, which is, like I said, an hour away from Halifax, to a Tim Hortons, and... Um, Annette tells me that Tina was just a really, really funny girl, and she would wear a little, she would uh, pretend that she was Zsa Gabor, and uh, a lot of people don't know who Zsa Gabor was, but she was a, a woman who died about two or three years ago. She was 93 years old, and she had this way of talking. She had this Hungarian accent, and she, she would have this affectation that when she spoke, and I won't even try to do it because I can't make my voice go that high. It, it, my voice will not go anywhere near that register. But uh, Zsa, Zsa Gabor was uh, known for being Zsa, Zsa Gabor in the same way that um, the Kardashians are known for being Kardashians. We don't know what they do for a living. They just make a whole lot of money doing whatever <laughs> it is they do. So she, Zsa, Zsa Gabor was the same way. And uh, she was also known, Zsa, Zsa Gabor was also known for being frequently married and frequently divorced. And uh, the joke goes that people say, used to say to her, why, why can't you just be a housekeeper? And she would say, well, I am a housekeeper. Every time I get divorced, I keep the house. <laughs> so anyway, she, Tina would talk like Zsa, Zsa Gabor, and it would be really funny for both of them. And uh, they would just sneak away for that hour or two or three hours just to get away from their pimps and have a little bit of fun, even though they knew they would be beaten for it afterward. So they had their, their time in Tim Hortons Truro. Yeah. It would, as it turns out, Annette would not even see Tina again because Tina would be found dead. Yeah. Although we don't know exactly what happened, could you tell me how she was found and what we know about the circumstances of her death? Well, she had gone missing, um, let me see here, on October 6, 1985. Her parents reported her missing. And this was, I think this is a day or so after the incident at Tim Hortons. And they, there was actually a black van that they 
encountered on the road to the Tim Hortons, and it was parked across the street from the Tim Hortons while they were cavorting around. And uh, Annette says she never saw it again. So there's a, there's a black van in there somewhere and somehow, but she went missing October the 6th, and on November 4th, that's when they found her body. They found her uh, close to the Indian Brook Reserve, a couple miles east of, of Shubenacadie. She was lying off the Robinson Road, and her body was partially covered with brush. And when she was first found, the initial thought was her death may actually be the work of a serial killer that may or may not have been working in the area. What led people to make that? There had been a couple other murders. There was Earlier there had been a murder of a girl named Elizabeth Gale Tucker from of Dartmouth, and the circumstances of her death were similar enough to Tina Marie's that they thought they might be linked, but that was quickly discounted. Yeah. And you even, in your article, you had mentioned there's an there's a anthropologist from... Newfoundland, who used her, the, the murder of Tina in a, a, a book he had wrote. Well, well, he, this guy named Elliot Layton was a professor at uh, Memorial University in Newfoundland, and he was already to put out a book called Hunting Humans, which came out a year or so later. And uh, he was, he never met a camera or a microphone he didn't like. And uh, he was always talking about um, serial killers and what common characteristics they seem to possess. So because he was doing this junket and because he was never shy around a camera, they interviewed him. And um, I don't know what he knew about the case, not very much, but he would speak in generalities about Tina Marie and and, uh, the fact that uh, a lot of serial killers will... um, leave someone on the side of a road and cover them up with brush and, and they kept it themselves. A lot, a lot of general statements were made and uh, nothing super specific. Okay, so basically like a serial killer may not bury the bodies and that was something that Tina Marie and the prior murder of Elizabeth that you said had in common. So there wasn't any hard evidence to connect these murders. I, I think he tried to produce a rule book for serial killers. Like this is what serial killers always do and and so on, but uh, people still cite his book. It's still uh, relatively well known, and uh, I'm sure some people listening right now will uh, have some comments to say about Elliot Layton and, and his book and my attitude toward it. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, the three musketeers, Tina, Brenda, and Annette, at the time were close friends working on as prostitutes, sex mm-hmm. workers, yeah. maybe human trafficked, a little bit of all of that kind of going on. They, but again, at the end of the day, they were close friends. When Tina was found murdered, understandably, Brenda and Annette very upset by this and wanted to attend her funeral. And again, just to this, kind, I think, kind of paints the picture of the type of family they come from. Tell me about when Brenda and Annette tried to attend Tina's funeral. They were not welcome there whatsoever. They wanted to put uh, some flowers on her coffin, which was probably, I'm sure, it was a closed service. And um, I'm trying to find my notes, but she, um, the mother and other family members said, you know, what the hell are you guys doing here? You fucking dirty whores, get out of here. And Annette says, I'm a proper woman, I leave now. And if you had been more of a mother, if you'd been looking for your daughter, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And, uh, yeah. 
Walk Among Us is an award-winning true crime podcast. From the sinister and surreal to the brutal and bizarre, join us to hear more on the UK's most notorious and obscure crimes. Featuring well-known cases like the life and crimes of the UK's most violent inmate Charles Bronson, to the sad tale of the Gibbons twins whose string of petty crimes would lead them to be trapped in Broadmoor for 11 years before their eventual release ended in tragedy. We also cover lesser-known cases like the woman who murdered a husband with an ornamental frog and kept him mummified in her shed for 18 years, or the teenager that used his elaborate online fantasy life to plot his own murder. Listen and subscribe to They Walk Among Us through Acast, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. At this point of the story, we heard how the three tragic musketeers ended up working Hollis Street together as 17, 16-year-old human human trafficking victims slash sex workers. After Tina's murder, which at this point was unsolved, Brenda and Annette continued to work the strip Mm -hmm. despite the death of their friend. However, in December of 85, Annette, your source for for your work, would have her last talk with her co-musketeer, Brenda. So tell me about the, the last phone call they had. You described this in your, in your article. Well, it wasn't a phone call. It was They were both working the strip, on the Hollis Street strip, and they had both solicited a particular guy. And they, the man chose Brenda. Before they, they left, Brenda went up to Annette and said... Um, Listen, remember that I love you, just give me a hug. And Annette told me. And so they hugged, and Brenda said to her, whispered to her, I've got the biggest surprise for you in the morning. And that surprise turned out to be a phone call from the police saying that Brenda had been murdered. And to this day, Annette does not know what that surprise was supposed to have been. Maybe the sex of the child because Brenda was pregnant, or maybe she was going to quit. I don't know what it was because Brenda had just been liberated from the home from of the guardian angel, which was where pregnant young girls used to go away to have their children. Back in the day, that was a shameful thing for a girl to be pregnant and. Um, young women would have their children, and they would be oftentimes adopted out. The children would be adopted out. So on the night of her murder, um, Brenda, who had been staying there, was retrieved from the home of the guardian angel by her pimp. And they, of course, she was working that night, and Annette was pretty disgusted by it. And then that's when they both solicited the man who ended up killing Brenda. And how was she found? Where, like, where, what? And, and did Annette know she was pregnant? Annette knew she was pregnant, yes. That's why she was staying at the home of the oh, guardian yes, angel. But um, it may have been that uh, Brenda knew what the sex of the child would be, and she was going to share that information with 
And that the next morning, it's it's pure speculation. Yeah, it was some big news. Could have been the sex, could have been, I'm done and I'm running away to Ontario, or who knows. Annette got the call the next day that, that her friend was, was dead. Where was she found, and do you know what the circumstances were? She, I don't know precisely how she was murdered, but she was murdered at the Waverly Inn Hotel, which is on Barrington Street. If you know the city, there's Morris Street and Barrington. If you keep on going south, there's... Uh, very old motel there, hotel there, and it's uh, they keep going on about that. That's where um, there was a very famous eight, uh, 19th century writer, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head, and shame on me for not thinking of the guy's name. But that's where he stayed when he visited Halifax, and they still talk about that. His ghost is haunting the place. Of course, but that's that's where um, that's where Brenda Lee Garside was was murdered. Mm-hmm. Now after. The second of the three musketeers were murdered. Annette continued to work as a prostitute. She did. Mm-hmm. She, at that point, she she was so lost. Her soul was so lost that she felt she had nothing to live for. She may as well keep uh, whoring herself out. And this is a a, a girl who uh, didn't come from much. had had poor self esteem and had been, like I said, trafficked into the street and and just. Um, Felt she had nothing to live for and wasn't wasn't worth uh, love. Now the the story basically ended at that point, which is Annette, her two friends have been murdered yeah. as a result of likely the prostitution or the sex work that they were involved and Annette continued to work as a you know a 17 year old again now without her two friends she was a source present day with your story so what became of her life and how did she talk about her history as a, as a human trafficking victim sex worker well I, I talked to Annette on the phone every week or so she wants to do a book about her life and she wants me to write it which uh, is a task I find so daunting that I I, I it scares the hell of me even to think about doing something like that. But she uh, she lives outside of the province. She um, uh, she's, on, she's on disability for a particular disease. Um, she has a, a daughter who is not in the business whatsoever. I spoke. I've spoken to the daughter, and um, she's just trying to pick up the pieces of her life, I guess is the way to put it. But she had a rough time of it in the years after Tina Marie Barron and Brenda Lee Garside were murdered. And she told me some stories. I mean, um, her pimp, to this day, she will not name her pimp. I've tried many times to to trick her into telling me how to tell, to, to me, tell me the guy's name, but she won't do it because she hates him. But... He knows that he has. She knows that he has children and family members who are innocent, and they have nothing to do with his former lifestyle. So, rather than drag them through the mud, she's not going to identify him. But uh, she told me about one time when she was so fearful of him, and to underscore that fear, she she was beaten by her pimp on Mother's Day. Her mom, uh, her pimp, rather, uh, 
split her el her forehead open and broke her elbow and threw her on her mother's doorstep. And if she said that if you say anything, I will uh, kill you or I will go after members of your family. But um, the story that really resonated with me was the one I shared in my article was um, after she had her daughter, she was living outside of Halifax in what she said was a pretty nice area. She took her daughter out trick-or-treating one year, and when a guy opened the door, it was one of her tricks. And they all, they both recognized each other. The man gave her daughter some candy. Um, kids came to the door. The guy's kids came to the door. The man's wife came to the door. And Annette just walked away marveling, saying, You have a nice house. You have a lovely wife. You have great kids. Why are you coming downtown to Hollis Street to hook up with us? What is wrong with you? And it's uh, that it resonated with her, and it's uh, something that I still think about. I said, what kind of man does that? And the story I keep hearing is that these guys go downtown to get prostitutes because they can't bring themselves to ask their wives or girlfriends to do the things that they want these women to do. And, uh, and Annette would say, say, well, why would you get married? Why would you hook up with these with these uh, girlfriends? Why, why come to us? What kind of man are you? You know, when you spoke to your source, Annette, she had some thoughts on Tina's death. So we'll, we'll back up a bit. Tina was the first of the three tragic musketeers yeah. to, to be murdered. She was found on a roadside, partially clothed. Although her murder has never been solved, again, there was some speculation that it could have been a result of a serial killer, but Annette had a different theory and a different idea of, of what led to Tina's death. Can you tell me about that? Well, I mentioned earlier the, this black van, and uh, there were actually two Tinas. There was another Tina who was, uh, whose pimp was related... There's so many pimps and so many girls, but there were two girls named Tina, Tina Marie Barron and this other Tina. And this other Tina's pimp had run afoul of a of one of the biker gangs. So they, as retaliation, as revenge or whatever, they're going to kill this other Tina. So already, the, but they grabbed Tina Marie Barron in error. So they were all ready to kill Tina Marie Barron when one of the other biker gang members walked in and said, no, you got the wrong girl. So they made Tina, they made Tina Marie Barron promise not to say anything and we'll let you go. So Tina Marie Barron escapes from what could have been her, her murder. And instead of keeping her mouth shut, she told everyone who would listen. And uh, Annette thinks that is what killed her. Um, I don't know, and uh, it's an interesting story. I don't know if that's what actually happened, but uh, that is as close to a working theory as I have heard about the murder of Tina Marie Barron. The outcome of her friend Brenda's murder was completely different. That, I guess it turned out, in fact, to be the result of a, of a serial killer. Yeah, this guy, um, and I'm trying to look up his name here, and I'm sure you have it in front of you more than I have it in front of me. But, oh, oh, here it is, Gregory George Ashford. He had killed uh, a young woman in Ontario, and to escape, 
what happened. He moved, he came to Nova Scotia very suddenly. I believe he actually knew Tina Marie Barron as well. They were friends in some capacity. So um, he was staying at the Waverly Inn on Barrington Street. And uh, he would walk among these uh, prostitutes at night. And uh, it turned out that Annette and uh, Brenda Lee Garci were both soliciting him. And for whatever reason, uh, Ashford selected uh, Brenda and uh, took her back to the Waverly Inn and killed her. For our closing thoughts, we won't get deep into it, but again, just where where this is a is such a the story is set in such a different Halifax than we know today. Like I couldn't imagine going downtown, walking Barrington and Hollis and seeing sex workers lined up. Like it's just not something that would. Well, I, I guess not even Halifax in any city today. That just seems kind of out of place. In recent years, I suppose it is, but it wasn't very many years ago. I would work downtown, and I would see some prostitutes there during the day. I would walk down Hollis Street to, because my job, my office building was on Hollis Street, and I would see them during the day, a couple of really brazen young women working the streets during the day. Like young as, like, because the girls in this story, they're like 17. Yeah, I I don't... in my article, I've, uh, I came up with a picture of Tina Marie Barron, and you and I both mentioned she doesn't look like she's 17. The, the, those girls grow up fast, and um, they are abused so badly that I don't know if... Uh, I think their youth is literally beaten out of them, so it's really hard to judge um, the age of, of these young women, but I suppose they might have been in their teens, early 20s. But uh, I, I used to work for a company that, where the head office or our branch was on Hollis Street, and we'd work late, and I'd be walking back to my apartment, and there would be a lot of these young women working through Hollis Street, and it was like you said, it was a different time. It's mostly gone online these days, but, but uh, and that's kind of the interesting point about it is it's it's not like that world of sex work, human trafficking. It still exists. It's just it's not out in the public. It's. It's, you know, it's, it's more covert and less overt. But I wonder if that's any safer for the people involved. It's hard to say. I don't hear about uh, young women being murdered nearly as much as I used to. It used to happen quite frequently, and I've written about several women who uh, worked the streets who ended up being murdered. Jean Myra and uh, Carla Strickland. And Carla Strickland was not a, a prostitute, but... She was a young woman who ran afoul of a serial killer, and there were a bunch of other ones who worked the streets or who didn't work the streets who ended up being murdered, but I don't hear about that nearly as much as I used to. After hearing that episode, I hope you may feel compelled to look differently at those less fortunate than you, or those forced into dark situations. Annette, if you're listening, I want to thank you for sharing your story with Bev and allowing him to share it with us. If you're ever interested in telling the rest of this story on the show, I'd be happy to have you on. 
And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to thank Bev Keddy for again joining me to discuss the lesser reported crimes that darken Nova Scotia's history. I'd also like to thank Frank Magazine editor Andrew Douglas for dressing Bev and pointing him in the direction of my house. To any listeners out there who want to read Bev's article in print, you may be interested in subscribing to Frank Magazine. You can find them at frankmagazine.ca. Tonight's music was expertly crafted and generously provided by Paragon Cause, the Ottawa-based dark wave duo. Go get their album, Escape. If you're interested in hearing more from Nighttime, please check out the patron group, where for $1 a month you can support the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes no longer available on this free feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Paige, Kim Stiles, Angela, Bart, and Bevan. I sincerely appreciate you supporting Nighttime and becoming a patron last month. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a hand by telling friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or an equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities both on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And of course, if you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.